Well, how many of you recognize this symbol? Right? And probably all of you, because this is one of the most well-known symbols probably in the world. It's a symbol that represents a company, right? What's that company? Nike. Of course it is. Now, Nike is actually a Greek word. And that Greek word is actually found in our passage this morning. So if you would, turn to 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. And as I read through these verses, I want you to see if you can identify what Greek word this represents. It says in chapter 5, verse 1, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we love by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you see it? The Greek word for Nike, translated in English, is victory. And in Scripture, it's talking about our ultimate victory, the victory of our faith. What he says is our Nike, our, faith, our victory is in our faith. And our passage will outline exactly what the victorious Christian life really looks like. So before we open God's Word together, let's begin our time in prayer. Father, we pray as we begin our time this morning that uh, you give us a greater appreciation of the victory that we have through our faith in Jesus Christ. Help us understand how this impacts our relationships with you, with others. How it impacts the way we live life in the midst of good times as well as suffering. Help us understand, Father, what it means to live the victorious Christian life of faith. That's our prayer as we open up your word this morning. Amen. Well, some of my favorite movies are the ones that are based on true stories. I love those accounts, and especially if those have to do with sports. I'm just a sports fan, and I love true stories that come from, from sports. And so some of the movies, probably my favorite one is a movie called Hoosiers. Have you seen that? Classic movie. Love that movie. I didn't even really play basketball that much, and that's still probably my all-time favorite movie. Um, well, another one is uh, a movie by the name of Rudy, you know, true life story of an unlikely hero, Notre Dame football. One more recent that uh, I watched and really enjoyed was 42, the story of Jackie Robinson. There's one that happened a few years ago, back around 2000. It was called Remember the Titans. How many of y'all saw that movie? Also one of my favorites. Uh, that was based on a true story about an African-American coach by the name of Coach Boone who became the head football coach in a racially divided high school in Alexandria, Virginia, somewhere in the 1970s. You would have thought our country would have evolved past this issue of racism, but it was alive and well at T.C. Williams High School. And that football team was divided among racial lines. 
One of the most moving scenes in that movie, if you've seen it, you'll remember this, is when Coach Boone loads up his players on the bus and takes them out to the field of the Battle of Gettysburg, one of the bloodiest battlefields in the Civil War. And it was at that time that he spoke to his team and listened to what he told them. He said, this is where they fought the Battle of Gettysburg. 50,000 men died right here on this field fighting the same fight that we are still fighting among ourselves today. This green field right here painted red, bubbling with the blood of young boys. Smoke and hot lead pouring right through their bodies. Listen to their souls, men. I killed my brother with malice in my heart. Hatred destroyed my family. You listen and take a lesson from the dead. If we don't come together right now on this hollowed ground, we too will be destroyed just like they were. I don't care if you don't like each other, but you will respect each other. And maybe, I don't know, maybe we'll learn to play this game like men. What great words. And it was a turning point. And that whole movie, as these men, these young men on this football team, learn the lesson of how destructive their division had become. And they went on to understand the power of their unity as they went on to win the state championship that year and did so having never been defeated. An undefeated season. It's a great movie. And if you watch sports movies, a lot of them have a very similar theme, don't they? And it's not because they're copying one another. It's because there are some common ingredients in successful teams when you look at them. Championship teams are made up of players who are committed to each other as they strive toward a common goal. Very often this formula of devoted teamwork and and uncompromising commitment leads to a place of victory. But that's not just true in sports. It's true in our spiritual lives as well. And and our passage will outline what that looks like as a Christian. Those who follow Christ. If you will, look at chapter 5, verse 1 again. And let's look at that together. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. I don't know if you've picked up on this, but but John speaks my language because he's very simplistic yet profound. And so what he does is to make sure we don't miss it, he repeats the same truths in different ways over and over again in this letter. One of the main things he wants us to understand is that connection between loving God and loving others. He says in this verse, whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. And it begs the question, who are the children of God? Well, John tells us in the beginning of that verse, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. It's an echo of that passage that we saw in chapter 3, verse 1 of this same letter when he says, Behold, how great a love the Father has for us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. See, the child of God is the one born of God through faith 
in Jesus Christ. And that relationship that we have with Him has an inevitable outcome on our relationship with other people. At the end of verse 21, in the passage that we looked at last week, it says that we, he who loves God must love his brother also. In that context, John seems to be describing to us the importance that as a Christian, we are to have a love without boundaries. He says, Jesus himself says that in chapter 5, verse 43. Just listen as I read this to you. It says, Jesus speaking, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet other brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? See, Christians are not called to only love those who are like them. Jesus says there's nothing special about that kind of love. Instead, we are called to love others with the love of Christ. And Jesus made that clear that it is a love that has no boundary. And I think probably the best, pictures that we, best picture that we see of that is in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Right? When Jesus explains in that message of the parable that His love is without boundary. So you can think of that parable and insert any figure that you want to. Prisoner. Prostitute. Politician. Homosexual. Homeless person. Because it doesn't matter. The point of the parable is that Jesus' love has no boundary. And if you are a child of God, then neither should yours. Now, he does make something clear to us in our passage this morning, though, because he seems to have a specific target in mind when he talks about the love that we should have. He says, whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. He's pointing to somebody specific, isn't he? The children of God are your brother's and sisters in Christ. Those who share your faith in God. Those who are a child of God. These are the ones, in a sense, who are on our team. Those striving together towards a common goal. Scripture consistently gives these relationships that we have with one another a very high priority. In fact, that's Paul's point in his letter to the Galatians. Chapter 6, verse 10. He says this, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men. There's the parable of the Good Samaritan. But listen to what he says, And especially to those who are of the household of faith. Love everyone, but the relationships that you have with one another within the body of Christ deserve a very special priority. And why is that? Why, why would that be important? Well, it's because the church has been given a very important mission that is dependent upon our unity. That's why Paul writes to the Ephesians, 
gives us an idea of that mission when he says the manifold wisdom of God is to be made known through the church. That's a pretty important priority. Would you agree? Jesus is the head of the church. The church is the body of Christ. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you're going to see how God puts this all together according to His design. It says that, that God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as He desires. He has given each one of them a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That same Spirit works in all things, distributing to each one individually, just as He desires. Do you not get the picture that this is very important to God, so much so that He is going to handcraft the body of Christ to include exactly what He knows is necessary to fulfill the mission that He has given us? God has built the church in a very specific way to accomplish a very important purpose. Because the church is called to proclaim the life-saving message. And that message of salvation in Christ alone is dependent upon the unity of its people. Which is why Paul tells us, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Division will destroy the mission of our team. If you think about it, that's really the motivation of John having written this letter in the first place, is it not? These false teachers have created confusion. It's created division. And he says, no, 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 no. There's too much at stake here. We can't go down that road. Division will destroy the mission. And we're not talking about state championships here. We're talking about the life-saving message of salvation through Christ alone. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Love all people. Be, be especially mindful, though, of those relationships that you have with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ because you have been designed by God, placed by God, prepared by God to declare a message of God through the testimony of the church. That's your team. Be committed to your team. As with all good teams, the, the church should be characterized by this uncompromising commitment to a common goal that we all share. Look at what it says in verse 2 of our passage. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. Let me remind you of what we talked about last week when we said that biblical obedience is based on love and is built on trust, remember? And so that way my obedience is not based on the fact that I've got to do this because I'm afraid God will zap me if, he, if, if, if I don't, if I make some kind of mistake. Because we learn that perfect love that love of Christ casts out all fear. Why? Because fear involves punishment. But there is no punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. He took that upon Himself. Perfect love casts out all fear. I don't obey out of guilt. Because I don't have anything to prove. I don't have anything to offer in order to prove 
myself. In fact, the more that I have that mindset, the farther I move away from God. Because I put the focus on my reputation and not on His. Our obedience needs to be based on love and built on trust. Doing what He says because I am convinced that His way is better than my way. That He is good. And that I've learned that I need to follow God and trust Him more than I trust myself. John goes on and, and makes the important point in verse 3 that, that the basis of this love for our obedience is because we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Now, we need to hear that. Because for many of us, we look at God's commandments and think of them as a list of rules and, oh my gosh, that is, that's a burden. I have to do this. I don't know about you, but I played on some teams where some coaches had us do some drills that I thought were a real burden, right? I remember one of them when I was in high school playing baseball for Coach Dudley. Early in the season, he would give us, he'd tell us to take off our glove and he'd give us a wooden paddle that we would need to use for a glove, right? And I remember looking at this wooden paddle that I was going to catch ground balls with and think, this is stupid. Why would I need a wooden paddle if I have a perfect leather glove that was made to catch ground balls right there in front of me? Right? That drill was a burden to me. But what I didn't realize is that leather glove doesn't catch ground balls. <laughs> it's the skills of the person whose hand is in that glove. And that drill that he had us do with those wooden paddles were teaching me a skill that I didn't have that I needed to develop. In fact, when I coached Grant's baseball team, early in the season as we get started, guess what one of the drills I always use? That's right, the wooden paddles. You see, obedience becomes a burden when we don't understand the purpose. The reason I use that drill now is because I get it. There's a purpose behind it. And Peter actually gives us a purpose in his letter that ties beautifully to our passage this morning. I want you to look at that. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. 1 Peter chapter 1. Just go left from 1 John you're going to run into... First and second Peter. I want you to look at first Peter chapter one, verse twenty two. Listen as he gives us the purpose. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purify your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable that is through the living and abiding word of god peter is telling us that we obey god because it changes our heart in a way that is made evident in our actions and more specifically peter is speaking to what john has alluded to and that is our love for one another those in the household of faith the niv translates this verse it says that when we obey, we learn to love one another deeply from the heart. That word deeply in the original language is an athletic term. It means literally with every muscle straining. And so quite literally, obedience builds the, the love muscles in our heart. God is love. And His commandments are given to us in love in order to teach us 
how to love. And the more we trust Him, the stronger our love becomes. Doesn't that help to see how those connections are made so tightly to one another? Think about this. John said that if we love God, we will love the children of God. And we will know that we love the children of God when we observe His commandments. Because one of the outcomes of observing His commandments is love. Obedience makes our love stronger. And that kind of obedience is based on the belief that His commandments are not burdensome because they are given to us in order to bring about His highest good in our life. We follow His Word, as Peter says, because we trust His heart. And this commitment to obedience is what teaches us how to love as our heart is transformed to be more like His. His love for us strengthens our love for one another so that we strive together towards a common goal through faith in Jesus Christ. That devoted teamwork and that uncompromising commitment is what leads us to the ultimate victory. Look at our passage again in verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You see, each day we live, we wake up to a battle against the same opponent over and over again. Paul describes what that battle is in his letter to the Ephesians, and he says this. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly places. And as daunting as that contest may seem to be, here's the good news. As Russell mentioned last week, in this battle against the spiritual forces of evil, the church is and always will be undefeated. Because it's based on a promise. And that promise was from Jesus Himself. You'll remember when Peter made that great confession. He says, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you remember what Jesus said in response to that testimony? He says, I tell you, Peter, that on this rock, this testimony of faith, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that I will build my church on that testimony, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's a promise to the church. John is saying the very same thing in our passage when he tells us in verse 4 that the children of God will overcome the world on the basis of their faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's the exact same promise. Now in our letter, John defines the, the, the opponent as the world. But I want you to know that he's saying the same thing as what Paul is saying. Because behind the world is a spiritual force of evil. And John's already told us back in chapter 2, verse 13, when he talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the sinful pride of life. There's a spiritual force of evil behind that. 
You go all the way back to the garden and you see that force of evil in the person of Satan within that serpent who spoke to Eve in that triad of temptation. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. The sinful pride of life. You'll see it again when Satan appears before Jesus in the desert and tempts him with what? The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. The sinful pride of life. Every day we wake up in the world in which we live, you face the same opponent who will tempt you with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the sinful pride of life. And although He may discourage us, He cannot defeat us. If We stand together with an uncompromising commitment to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of what? Our faith. Our victory is our faith. Why? Because Jesus is the object of our faith. And He has overcome the world. And we have victory because of what He has accomplished on our behalf. Now, as we read this passage, I, I hope you get the sense of the, the corporate identity of, of who we are as a team, if you will, of brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, just look back at the verse and glance at it. You'll see words like whoever. And by this we know, we love, we keep His commandments. Clearly, this is a message to the church. This is about our teamwork, our commitment, our victory. And with that in mind, I want you to consider something with me this morning. I want you to think about this. Is it not possible that the apostles preach the message of salvation in Jesus Christ not for individual conversion alone? Think about that. Maybe there's something more. You see, the apostles didn't preach the gospel just so that there would be a new me. I believe the apostles preached the gospel so that there would be a new we. Right? The apostles didn't preach the gospel just so there would be a new you. The apostles preached the gospel so that there would be a new us. A collection of redeemed people bought from sin and the judgment of God to become a new, as Jason said, royal priesthood, a holy people, a nation set apart for God's purposes. I don't win this battle because of who I am on my own. We win this battle because of who we are together. The promise Jesus made was to us as a church. And if you try to do this on your own, you will not survive. Please listen to me. When I tell you that, it's the collective strength of the church that prevails against the gates of hell. And there is no more common trend that I see in Christians who fall into sin than the fact that they have chosen to leave the fellowship of the church. There is nothing more common than that. You are not meant to do this alone, and neither am I. We are made for one another. And when we walk alone, we walk a path of destruction. Because it is not good 
for man to be alone. And that's more than just your marriage. That's the fellowship that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. See, we have to stop thinking about the Christian life as something that we do something individually and personally. It was never intended to be that way. That's a message from the world, okay? Our world tells us that it's all about you that you deserve a break, that that this is all about your life, individual, your own personal freedoms. It's a lie from the world. And the enemy is out to convince you that you don't need anybody else, that you are okay on your own. But the truth of Scripture tells us that we are dependent upon one another to fulfill the mission to which we have been called to such a degree that God has handcrafted us, placing each of us in the body just as He desires, equipping each of us with the Spirit for the common good of us all. We were meant to be in fellowship with one another. We may enter faith individually and personally, but we live out that faith corporately and publicly. So look around you. And not just those people who are sitting next to you, because I know how we are. We like to sit in the same place, surrounded by the people that we know. All right? So here's what I want you to do. Look at somebody on the other side of the aisle. Okay, I want you to do it. Now, here's my question. Do you know their name? Do you know their name? Do you pray for those people? Do you understand the battles that they're facing? Have you committed your life to be in fellowship with them? See, some of us need to strengthen the love muscles in our heart, don't we? (laughs) To consider the needs of others as more important than our own. We as a church have a mission to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. We as a church have been handcrafted by God to carry out that mission. We as a church have been called not to forsake our own gathering together, as is the habit of some, but to consider how to encourage each other toward love and good deeds, even more as the day draws near. We as the church have been designed to display the manifold wisdom of God. Our unity and commitment is the key to our victory as we proclaim the message of eternal life through faith in Christ alone. Now let me close with this. You see this symbol all over the place, right? It's on clothing, it's on commercials, it's on sports equipment. So let me challenge you that every time you see that symbol, you stop and think about what that name means. Nike. Victorious. And I want you to think about what it means for who we are as a church and our commitment to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And maybe in that moment you can stop and just pray for one of those people that you might remember them, walk in fellowship with them, maybe call them, maybe encourage them. Every time you see that symbol, I want you to stop and ask yourself, am I living the victorious life of faith in community and fellowship with those that God has called together for a common purpose, striving towards a common goal 
to make his name known. Every time you see that symbol, you ask yourself that question. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and the promise of the victorious life of faith. And we realize and remind ourselves this morning, even as we come to the table and celebrate communion, even as we sing songs of worship, that that victory is not based on what we've done, it's based on the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, who won the victory on our behalf. Our victory is His victory. Our life is His life. Our hope is His hope. So, Father, may we be reminded in a culture, in a world that, that push us towards individualism, that this is all about me, that we really realize and, and, and understand this morning that it's really about us. And it's important to know about me only as I understand how it impacts us, who we are as a church, handcrafted by You, our Heavenly Father, in order to carry out the most important mission this world has ever known. Proclaim salvation through faith in Christ alone. Father, may we reaffirm ourselves to that commitment this morning to you and to one another. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great victorious week.